We are beginning a two-part sermon series on family tonight. So tonight and next Saturday, I'm going to talk about family. Did you know that October is, is recognized as family month in our country? I don't know when that started, but we've been observing that for the last few years. And so a couple, couple sermons just that are focused around the whole theme of family. Uh, Hoosier-born coach John Wooden said... The most important thing in the world is family and love. Now, knowing that Coach Wooden was an ardent Christian, I I suspect most of you know that, that he was a very strong Christian. He probably, in that statement, includes also the whole concept of the family of God. Some of you may be thinking, God's got a family? Yes, he does. Tonight is our family reunion, our weekly family reunion as his family. The church in Scripture is described in a lot of picturesque ways. The church is described as the bride of Christ. It is described as soldiers of the Lord, but my favorite is the family of God. Now, I like that for several reasons. The word family denotes, first of all, a concept of belonging, support, and encouragement. Now, I realize that sometimes families don't work that way. I realize that maybe some of you grew up in a family that you would not describe in that way. But that's the way it's supposed to work. And the word family is supposed to denote that kind of an image. And families are composed of all different types. It is amazing to me how children that are born of the same two parents and raised in the same environment can look and act so completely different. Is that amazing to anybody else? Um, now, Now, some families, some families look like cookie cutter. I think we've got a picture up here or anything. Do we have a picture? We don't have a picture. <laughs> all right, we were supposed to have a, a picture. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Jeff about that at a later time, all right? You know the kind of family. We, we had a family at church some years ago. Their kids looked like I never knew which one I was talking to because they all looked the same. I mean, they just looked like they were, like they were cookie cutters. And some look like they are of a patchwork quilt. Every one of them is different in some kind of fashion. So how does one end up in a family? Well, there's, there's generally speaking three basic ways that you end up in a family. The most obvious one, of course, is you're born into your family. The composite of two converging genetic lines and the environment in which you are raised. You're born into a family. It is what it is. You can't change that. The second way to get into a family is through adoption. For reasons perhaps unknown to you, you were not raised by your biological parents, but were rather chosen to be a part of a family who wasn't stuck with you, as a natural-born child might be, but who wanted you. In most cultures, an adopted child has all the legal rights and privileges of a natural-born child. Adoption is a pretty cool thing. And thirdly, a person might choose to be a part of a family. I know individuals whose lives were impacted by, by another family, so much so that they gravitated towards spending time with that family, and out of that family grew to some kind of an experience or expectation that made a grand difference in their life. And of course, when you marry as an in-law, you become a part of another family. And that's a choice you make. And sometimes... I've known couples who just could not bring themselves because for whatever reason, they couldn't get along with the other family. I've seen in-law relationships, however, become stronger than bloodline 
families, you see. And that's a family by choice. Now, here's what I think is awesome about the family of God. And that is all three family entry points are spelled out in Scripture. Jesus had a conversation with a man that uh, that was a religious leader, name of Nicodemus, comes to him by night so nobody else sees him coming. And and John, chapter 3, records this conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus have. This is what we read. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So Jesus gives this analogy of natural birth. This is how you also come into the family of God. You've got to be born again. But the imagery doesn't end there. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 1, verse 4. Even before he made the world... God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to what? Adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So the Bible says we've been adopted into the family of God. And thirdly, we have a choice. Romans 10, 12, 13 says... Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our choice. There's also this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, verse 20, says, Jesus says this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What's that say? Jesus said, I'm here, it's your choice whether or not you invite me. So, all three of these ways to enter a family, God says, are ways that I welcome you. You must be born again. I have adopted you into my family. It is your choice. Everybody who is willing may come. And in every case, when someone new comes into the family, there is a moment of celebration. I remember well both of our daughter's births. Ultrasounds were not an exact science back then. The doctor would say, here's your child, and it just looked like a mess on the screen to me. We didn't know who we were getting until the day of their births. And I remember when the doctor announced with joy, you have a daughter. And the nurses were all smiles, and we held each of them and celebrated with great joy. And I still do. There is a moment in an adoption process when the judge signs the mountain of paperwork and that child becomes a legal and loved part of the family. And again, there is great joy and celebration in a marriage where somebody becomes an in-law, a new part of the family. I have yet to preside over an angry and sad wedding. It just, it just well, maybe it happened somewhere. I've just never had the... I wouldn't call it the privilege. I've just never had the opportunity to marry that kind of... It's usually filled with great joy and excitement because there's somebody new in our family. I don't think of my sons-in-law as in-laws. I just think of them as family. 
So does God have a moment like the first cry of a newborn or the state seal that is applied to the paperwork of an adoption or words like, I now pronounce you husband and wife and the two families become one? Well, I believe he does. Not because he needs it, but because we need it. Just like the Lord's Supper. God doesn't need the Lord's Supper. We do so that we don't forget. I believe that God's family celebration occurs at baptism, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Baptism symbolically is like a natural birth. It is like a change of relationship in adoption, and it's like a marriage ceremony that unites two people's lives and two families together. And it is unique in our spiritual experience that it happens, unlike ne- nearly everything else in our Christian walk, only once. We take the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. I'm hoping we pray on a daily basis. We probably repent on a multiple times basis every day. And our faith is an ongoing, growing process. But we're only baptized once. I was married once. Now, we have birthdays that we celebrate every year, you know, to acknowledge the fact that I was born once. We celebrate an anniversary. We don't go back and have to get married in front of a preacher every year or every six months just to re-up. The the marriage is good enough, but we celebrate an anniversary every year. God's welcome to the family moment is a one-time experience. Now, the Greek word from which we get our word baptized, as you all know, means to dip, plunge, or immerse. That's the practice that we find in the New Testament. We've seen that here. Uh, Corey has baptized a few young people here in the baptistry. We have witnessed that. You saw a great video of people being baptized into Christ. And, and in every case, there was this moment of celebration. And it's all, I've often thought, okay, what is it about baptism? What is it about this through-the-water experience that is so incredible? The Ethiopian's baptism is described in Acts chapter 8 as going down into the water and coming up out of the water. There's something about this picture of passing through the water that, that denotes a change in relationship or a change in life. And, and wouldn't you know that God builds that into the Old Testament as he just lays the foundation for what's to come in the New Testament. Did, did you realize that? I mean... How many baptisms do we have in the Old Testament? Anybody want to venture a guess? Zero. That's right. It's a New Testament practice. But the story begins in the Old Testament of through the water. Let let, let me tell you what I mean. In the opening verses of the creation account in Genesis, this is what we read in Genesis 1 verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But then in verse 9 it says, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the the dry land, the dry ground appear. And it was so. And it was once the land appeared coming through the water that life began to explode on the earth. It was as, as if God was saying, Through the water comes new life. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Creation itself, you might say, began with a baptism. 
Now, six chapters later, God commands Noah to build an ark for the saving of his family and a smattering of the animal kingdom with which he was going to start all over again. I've often thought, have have you ever stopped to think how many ways God could have destroyed the world? If if God wanted to start all over again and and clean it all up and say, this first group didn't do so swift, I'm I'm, I'm going to change this, all right? Okay, how, how many ways could God have done it? He could have done it with hurricane-force winds, just whipping across the world and wiping it all clean to start all over again, you know, protecting Noah and, again, that group of animals to start all over with. He could have used a global virus and just cleaned the whole earth off with a global virus, except, again, protecting Noah and that smattering of the animals. He could have used a raging fire to sweep across the globe. He could have used... A meteor strike that just destroyed life on this globe. Why a flood? I'm not not looking for an answer. I know you don't know any more than I know about why a flood. But I think think there's something in this picture of cleansing through the water that is significant. He chose a flood as if to say through the water comes cleansing and a new birth. A rebirth, a second chance. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? As a matter of fact, Peter uses Noah and the flood in his letters in the New Testament as as an example, as a symbol of baptism. One book over, Exodus, Moses and the recently released Israelites find themselves up against the Red Sea on this side are mountains, on this side are mountains, and coming up the valley behind them is the Egyptian army. And God holds off the army while Moses holds out the rod over the, over the Red Sea and the waters miraculously part. You've seen it. I know you've seen it. You've watched, you know. I mean, Charlton Heston does a fabulous job. Of getting the waters of the Red Sea to part, doesn't he? And so you got this picture. And, and in the book of Corinthians, Paul writes and he says that the Israelites all were baptized into Moses. They passed through the sea and under the cloud they were baptized into him. It's as if God is saying, through the waters comes true freedom. Freedom from the slavery of Egypt for us. It's freedom from the slavery of sin. In the book of Joshua, the Israelites finished their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and they prepare to move into the promised land. The Jordan River is all that separates them from the promised land and it's at flood stage. Just like 40 years before at the banks of the Red Sea, God parts the waters of the Jordan, rolls the waters back up, and the Israelites cross over the Jordan or through the banks of the Jordan into the promised land. It's as if God is saying, through the water comes the promise of a new home forever. Do you, do you see where this pattern is going? Can you not see how God throughout his entire story laid the groundwork for what was to come. This whole picture of through the water is a grand and beautiful picture. So when John showed up baptizing people, not in the Sea of Galilee, not in any other river, but the very Jordan River where the Israelites crossed into their new home, he got tagged with John the baptizer because he was doing something so great and unique. And Jesus himself was baptized in the Jordan, pointing back to the very creation and the eternal story itself. Again, N.T. Wright writes this. 
He said, that is why from very early on, Christian baptism was seen as the mode of entry into the Christian family and why it was associated with the idea of being born again. So it is my hope and prayer that if you, for whatever reason in your life, have never been baptized into Christ, that you'll change your mind, you'll change your direction about that this evening, that you will say, I, this is God's story. This is God's welcome home moment. I need to be a part of that. Now, to some of you, the act of baptism seems a bit odd, maybe even baffling. But, but once you understand the symbolism, it's crystal clear. This morning, we had a breakfast uh, up in Bloomington for uh, about baptism so we had some of the folks who've come who who, uh, and I I taught a lesson on baptism and when I read the passage I'm about to read to you and explained the symbolism of it one of the ladies was baptized right after the breakfast she said that's all I needed to hear now here's the passage this by the way one of my favorite passages on baptism and it's Romans chapter 6 and Paul writes this to make sure there's no misunderstanding in the mind of his recipients that Well, we don't abuse the grace of God, because when we were baptized, we died to sin. And this is what he writes in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Here's the picture. When you see those folks going down into the water, when you went down into the water, your body looked like a corpse. The eyes were closed. You couldn't hear as the water surrounded your head. You're holding your breath. Your arms are folded up over you. Instead of being vertical, you're horizontal. You've died. Under the water, it becomes a watery grave. You've been buried. And then you're raised up out of the water. Your eyes open. You begin to breathe. You begin to move. You've experienced a resurrection. You have been united with what Jesus Christ did at the cross and at the tomb. You have experienced a death, a burial, a resurrection. And suddenly, this picture of coming through the water makes altogether new sense. What does it mean to to die to sin? It means that doing the right thing, the godly thing, becomes our priority. It means that we strive to avoid the people, things, and places that tempt us most. It means we've changed direction, that we're walking toward the light instead of toward the darkness. It means that sin no longer has power or dominance in our life. doesn't mean we live perfect. It just means that sin doesn't dominate our life at that point. When the President of the United States issues a pardon, it changes a person's standing to the law. It does not change a person's guilt or innocence. It just changes their standing in light of the law. When God forgives us, it doesn't make us sinless. It just changes our standing in relationship to him. The old charges can never be leveled at us again. The Apostle Paul says that when we are baptized, we crucify the old life and our relationship to sin is buried once and for all. Baptism doesn't make us sinless, but it certainly changes our standing with God. The old changes 
and the old charges are gone for good. Now, do not think that baptism is some meritorious work or deed. It is completely passive. How many of you baptized yourself? Let me see your hands if you've been baptized. Whoa, 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 back up. Maybe I didn't make that clear. If you've been baptized, how many of you baptized yourself? Okay, that's what I thought. You know, I don't know who baptized you, but you didn't do it on your own because it's a passive act. It is something that is done to you. It is a picture of our submission to God's will. In Romans, Paul uh, uses the word united with Christ in reference to baptism, which literally means growing together like a branch grafted into a tree. We do not need the original cross for us to identify with his cross. You see, I cannot remove my own sin. You can't either. The passive act of baptism reminds us that only God to whom I submit can forgive my sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I've shared this story with you before, but it's it's good and it bears repeating. Sam Houston was quite the character early on. You know him from Texas heritage and lore, led the rebellion against Mexico, was the first governor of, of the first president of the, of the nation of, or the Republic of Texas, and then, of course, the first governor after it was incorporated into the United States. He, w- he was, well, to put it mildly, he was a rounder. Uh, and, uh, and later in his life, he, he married his uh, third wife, and, and she was a very strong Christian, and he becomes a believer. When he was baptized, Someone said, well, General, all your sins have been washed away, to which Houston replied, if that be so, God help the fish below. Now, while we know that our sins don't pass into the water, it it was a pretty good example of the fact that our sins are washed away by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and this marvelous picture of through the water makes all the difference. This is not to suggest that salvation is found in the act of water baptism. It's not as if the deed itself is enough or if there's something extra potent in the water that scrubs the soul. Our slogan is not, once baptized, you'll be sanitized. That's not our slogan. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that makes possible the forgiveness of our sin. However, it is in the one-time act of baptism where we identify with that very event. We are united with him. In the book of Acts, the church's history book, baptism always followed immediately on the heels of a person's profession of faith. But I believe our biggest struggle is always with the submission part. If you're like me, you want to be in control of every aspect of your life. Submitting is not an easy thing to do. A few times in my life I've had surgery. Some of you have probably had surgery too. I can't think of any other moment in time where I am totally submissive like that. When you lay down on that operating table and they begin to give you that happy juice and you maybe are asked to count backwards in that split second before you pass into oblivion, you realize I absolutely have no more control. You are submitting to the skill and the ability of the surgeon. Now, here's the thing. A lot of surgeries are life-saving. But the only way it's going to save your life is if you submit to the surgeon. 
I, I'm telling you, baptism is a picture of what God does for us as a surgery on the soul. But you and I have to submit to the life-saving ability of the Father through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So let me, let me just sum it up in this way. In baptism, we are reborn, chosen, loved, washed, adopted, set free, crucified, and promised an eternal home. We are identified as God's own, then assigned a place and a job in his family. So I guess I come to the question that you may be asking in your own heart. Should I be baptized? And I would say absolutely yes. If you've never been baptized, you you just need to do this. And it should be done with enthusiasm and excitement, not with the roll of an eyes or the condescending, okay, if I have to, I'll do it attitude. It should be the most joyous and exciting moment in your spiritual journey. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you want to follow him, surrender your life to him. This is the act that you can always point back to and say, I will never forget that day. Now, I'm here to tell you, my grandparents used to tell me stories about breaking the ice in the wintertime that baptized people on the farm ponds. That's real submission, okay? There's no ice on the baptistry back here. As a matter of fact, the water may not be quite as warm as we would like for it to be. That, that, that's not going to bother me. I'll go down in the water with you tonight. Of course, I'll be wearing waders and you won't. That'll make a little bit of difference in the, in the temperature. I get that. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. What, wherever it is, whatever's going on, it, it's about this commitment to Jesus Christ. And, and we make it harder than we ought to. We ask questions like, well, is it necessary for salvation? Or what if a person gets stuck in the desert and can't be baptized because there's no water there? At what moment is a person saved? Well, unless we understand the mind of God and the heart of one who believes, I I think those questions only complicate the matter. If you're stuck on the third floor of a burning building and somebody calls 9-11, the dispatcher notifies the fire station, the fire trucks rush to the scene, a crew hoists a ladder to the window while a firefighter scampers up the ladder and carries you out, who saved you and when? Was it the 911 call or the dispatcher or the red truck or the ladder or the person who went up the ladder? Who cares? You're out of the burning building. Does the moment actually matter? Because I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think only God knows the moment. It's everything coming together that makes all the difference. The, the real question that every one of us needs to grapple with, if we haven't done this, is not why or how, it's when. Like the Ethiopian said to Philip, here's water. Why can I be baptized? Can I do it now? It's the when that matters most. And I'll guarantee you it'll be one of the most memorable moments of your life. I was 12 years old. It was April the 2nd, 1967. I can remember it as if it were yesterday. A lot of things in my memory I can't remember from when I was 12 years old. But I'm telling you, that day when I passed through the waters, stuck in my mind, like God sealed it there indelibly forever. And I will be forever grateful that I can point back to that moment and say, that was the day I made my pledge of allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Have you done that? Water's ready. 
I'm ready. John's ready. He's going to lead us in some songs. Are you ready? You say, well, I don't want to do it tonight. I want to wait till some of my family gets here. Okay, all right. We'll do it whenever your family gets here. But I, I'm, I'm telling you, do not put this off any longer. Today's the day. The moment is now. While we stand and while we sing, you come.